0: Uh, We're continuing our walk through the book of Mark, uh, and we have come today. We're in Mark chapter eight, uh, and we are going to deal with what I believe is the the pivot point in the entire book, Uh, the thing that Mark has been driving towards that really changes the story. But before we get to that point, we have to deal with another one of those pesky miracles from Jesus those things that for uh, back in his day gave people a hard time and for millennia since have continued to give us a hard time. Jesus just wouldn't stop healing people. Jesus just wouldn't stop doing things that we don't understand in ways that we didn't understand. Uh, and here we have another one of those that we're going to move through pretty quickly uh, to get on to the next point, but I, I can't skip this. Mark 8, 22. Uh, then they came to Bethsaida. If you remember, Jesus and his disciples were just on the boat heading back across the Sea of Galilee once again. Uh, they just had the whole thing where Jesus said, beware the yeast of the Pharisees. And the disciples are like, oh, no, he's onto to us. We don't have bread. He's mad about that. They're completely missing it. Uh, he has this whole conversation with them. Now they land on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Then they came to Bethsaida. They brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and brought him out of the village. Spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look to me like trees walking. Again, Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes and he saw distinctly. He was cured and could see everything clearly. Then he sent him home alone saying, Don't even go into the village. So here we have, uh, let's just break break this down again. Part of going through Mark is I want to, to help us learn to put ourselves in the story. What would it have been like to have been there and to see Jesus do these things? Or maybe even to be the man that Jesus was healing. What would this have been like? And so we find Jesus gets over there. And again, word about him has spread and the people start flocking to him. He didn't have to go search this man out. They brought him to him and begged him to touch him. I don't want to miss this real quick. How difficult would it have been for a blind man to find Jesus? Pretty tough, yeah? This man had people in his life who loved him enough to bring him to where Jesus was. And As I was reading this this morning, I didn't want us to miss this church. This could be like a mission statement for the church. People who love those around them enough to get them to Jesus. This man was blessed, even though he was blind, even though he was suffering, he had people in his life that loved him enough to get him in front of Jesus. And my heart was challenged with it of going, that's my call, to love people enough to get them in front of Jesus. My brothers and sisters in Christ, when we're suffering and hurting and struggling, to help walk you to the feet of Jesus Those who don't know him, those that that I weep over in prayer, how do I get them in front of Jesus? This man was blessed enough to have those people in his life. They brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. This man had people that loved him enough to bring him to Jesus. And then things get a little weird. Most of the healings that we read about, most of the miracles that we see, Jesus commands and it's done. Sometimes there are those that get a little weird. We looked a couple weeks ago, Jesus puts his, his fingers in a man's ears and then touches the man's tongue with those same fingers, which is kind of gross, but like, and said, be opened and, and the man could all of a sudden hear and he could speak. And we talked about why did Jesus have to put his fingers in the man's ears and, and touch his tongue? Here we come across one that that really makes you scratch your head. Jesus takes the man outside of the village and it says, spitting on his eyes and laying hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? So again, put yourself in the position of this man. Your friends have brought you to Jesus. You've heard the stories. Jesus takes you by the hand and starts to lead you outside of town. Now you have some questions. I don't know him. From what I've heard, I think I can trust him, but he's leading me outside of town. He says, okay, cool, stand here. You're blind, you can't see anything. Did he just spit at me? Like, my life's not bad enough. He just spit in my eyes? What? None of the other stories have talked about Jesus doing this kind of stuff. Why would he spit on me? And then he lays hands and he prays. And as if things didn't get weird enough for those of us looking on, it didn't even fully work. Jesus spits in his eyes and he touches them and he prays for him. And he says, can you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look to me like trees walking around. Real quick backstory that tells us that this man has seen before. He wasn't born blind. He lost his sight at some point because he knows what trees are. He knows people walking around. If you're blind, like from birth, and the first thing you see is people walking around looking like trees, you probably think, This is what people look like. Kind of treeish things walking around. This man has seen before, and he knows things aren't quite there, Jesus. I can see, but it's weird. And so Jesus again places his hands on the man's eyes, and then he saw distinctly. It said he was cured and could see everything clearly. Why did Jesus have to pray twice? You ready for this? It's interesting. I have no idea. No clue. It's not told to us in the scriptures why Jesus spit on the man's eyes, why Jesus had to pray twice, why there was kind of this progressive healing instead of boom, done, all at once. I don't know. It's not given to us. It's just recorded this way because this is how it happened. But something that, that I take comfort in when I read stories like this, when I read the stories like Jesus putting his fingers in the man's ears, or, or there's a, a thing where Jesus spits in the mud, makes cakes and puts them on the man's eyes so that he can be healed. Like, why did he do those things? I don't know, but here's what I take. There is no special formula to receive the power of God, to see the hand of God move. It's not you have to pray this very specific prayer and use these eloquent words and stand on one foot and come on an odd day of the month and we don't have this formula to follow. It is simply seeking Jesus and obeying what he calls you to do. When it comes to Jesus' ministry, in another part, in one of the Gospels, Jesus says, look, I only do what I see the Father do. Whatever the Father tells me to do, I simply obey. And the kingdom of God moves forward because of it. This, I think, is what we need to take from it. Have you ever had a scenario Where God calls you to do something outside of your comfort zone. Where God calls you to do something that doesn't make sense. But we don't talk to those people. But I don't even know that person. Or I know this person and you don't say this to that person. But God is leading you to it. Will we trust him with that? This is outside of the norm, Jesus. Spit on the man's eyes? What? What? Will we we be obedient even when it doesn't make sense, even when it's difficult, even when it's outside of the norm? Because here's the thing. We read this, and in our American mindset, we go, Jesus, this wasn't a very efficient miracle. You took extra steps. You had to pray extra times. Couldn't you have just said, you're healed, and it be done? Like, is he that powerful? Yeah. You weren't very efficient with this, Jesus, And I think it's important, Jesus has never been after efficiency, Jesus has been after faith. Through our obedience to him, even in those weird outside of the comfort zone things, and I think actually especially in those, through our obedience, our faith is built up and we will see the power of God at work. Through our obedience in those outside of our comfort zone moments, the world around us, their faith will be built up and they will see The hand of God at work. Why did Jesus spit in the man's eyes? I don't know. Why did he pray twice and it was this progressive thing? I don't know. What do I know? Jesus was obedient to what the Spirit led him to do, and there was a man who could see on the other end because of it. The kingdom of God was advanced. Everyone watching, their faith was built up, even with all the questions they had, because of the obedience of Jesus Faith was built up, and the hand of God moved. Does this make sense, church? It's as much as I can make out of it. I would love to be able to go into, here's the, here was the meaning of spit back in the Jewish culture, and it's not there. But God is on the move, and he will do things his own way. Are we willing to follow, even if he says spit in their eyes, so that they could see? It's, that's a tough one. But this is what we see Jesus doing once again on the move, healing, casting out demons, the kingdom at work. And so this is just a Tuesday for Jesus. He's out doing what he does, and then he pulls his disciples aside, and it's time to have a question with them. It's, it's time to get to the thing that I think Jesus has been waiting to talk about with them. That We're about three years into his ministry. I think he's been waiting about three years to have this conversation with them. So after they were at Bethsaida, he heals this man. And then it says in verse 27 Jesus went out with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? They answered him, John the Baptist, others, Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. But you, he asked them again, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Messiah. And he strictly warned them to tell no one about him. This question, who do people say that I am? This is the thing that when you read back through the first eight chapters of Mark, Mark is 16 chapters long, eight being right in the middle of 16. This is a pivotal point in the story. This is the thing that Mark has been driving toward. Who do people say that I am? Look at the questions that Mark has been recording of people asking as he drives towards this point. This is just a few of them. In Mark chapter 2, verse 5 to 7, we've read all these stories before. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, the one that was lowered down through the roof, when he saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? What's the question they're really asking their church? Who does this guy think he is? Only God can do what he's claiming to do. Who is this man? Who does he think he is? Mark chapter 4, two chapters later. They're on the, uh, the sea, and remember, the disciples are panicking because a storm has come up, and Jesus, don't you care that we're going to drown and we're going to die? He got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Even the disciples who had been with Jesus for two plus years at this point in time. What's the question on their lips? Who is this? Who is this man? Two chapters later, Mark chapter 6. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. And what's this wisdom that has been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? They're asking questions, but then all of a sudden there's a shift. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James and Joseph, Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Who does he think he is? We we know this guy. We went to high school with this guy. Who does he think he is? It started with this kind of awe. Where does this wisdom come from? Where does he get this authority? Wait, that's Jesus? Who does he think he is? We know where he comes from. There's always this questioning all around Jesus from those that are following him to those that are opposing him. Who is this man? Think about all the times that Jesus, uh, we've read so many times in, in the book of Mark so far, casting out unclean spirits. And the thing he always has to say to them, quiet, shut up. Because they come up and they go, we know who you are. You are the son of God, the Messiah. And he says, quiet, People aren't ready to know that yet. People are asking, who am I? Don't give away the ending. Jesus knew how to build to a dramatic finish. And he knew that if people got hip to it too quick, there was a whole bunch of assumptions that were going to come in behind and fill it in. And he said, they're not ready for that. So he's constantly telling all of these unclean spirits, quiet, because they keep calling him by his name. Think of all the times like one that we had just read where Jesus takes someone off to a secluded place. He heals them and he tells them, now don't tell anyone. Maybe he says, go to the uh, temple and offer whatever sacrifices are needed, but don't tell anyone. He just told the the man that was healed after he spit in his eyes. He says, "Uh, don't go go through the village, just go directly home. I'm trying to make it so that word doesn't spread this quickly. I'm trying to not give away the ending because as soon as people start putting together that I'm the Messiah there's a whole backlog of stuff that's attached to it that's going to come into their minds, and I don't want that for them yet. This is, this is strange for us because we come 2,000 years later knowing a whole bunch that they didn't know at the time. We know how the story ends. But for them, that word Messiah was a loaded, loaded thing. But let's start here. So Jesus went with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked them, who do people say that I am? So here's, here's kind of the, the word on the street of who Jesus is, John the Baptist. For, for people to say, man, he's John the Baptist. First of all, John the Baptist baptized him, so it's kind of a weird thing. How could, how could he be both? But people were just trying to make sense of it because they've never seen anything like Jesus before. And so to say that he was John the Baptist was to put him on an upper echelon. John the Baptist was an incredibly respected man. Everyone believed that John was sent from God to do the work of God, to to announce the kingdom. And so to say, for people to say that Jesus was John the Baptist was to say, he is an incredibly respected man. He is a powerful man moving among us. For them to then say, he is Elijah. Elijah was an Old Testament prophet, not just a prophet, one of the prophets. Elijah, the way that his time on earth ended was he was carted up to heaven in a chariot of fire. Pretty important guy. And they're going, maybe this is Elijah coming back. One of the prophets. This was top tier for them. And then they even just say, or one of the other prophets. The, the word on the street was that Jesus was an incredibly important man of God. Maybe one like they had seen before, but, but real important. So let me ask you this question. I think this is a really important question for us to ask. Who do people say that Jesus is today? Let's take some time. Let's learn from each other. Who do people say that Jesus is today? A prophet and a teacher? Alpha and omega? For right now, think outside of the church, just in the world around us. Okay, yeah, the, the teacher and a prophet thing, people love to latch on to that. Jesus is a good teacher. He just taught really good lessons. Maybe would he, would he, he's the son of God or any of these things. Eh, not sold on that, but he was a good teacher is where a lot of people would come in. What else? Okay, yeah, some people, he's a mythological creature. He's like a dragon and a unicorn. He never really existed. Some guys just made him up to kind of teach some good things. That one's a little more nonsensical. There's not a whole lot, even in the scientific community, that would say Jesus never existed. But there is that, just in the world around us, there are some that would go, yeah, I don't even know if there was a guy named Jesus. Who do people say that Jesus is today? A guy named Jesus. I love it. Who do people say that Jesus is? This is a really important question for us to ask because if our job is to take people to the feet of Jesus, it's going to be really important for us to understand who they believe Jesus is. It's going to really affect how we bring them to Jesus. If they're going, he's a mythological creature, or he was just some good teacher back then. What else? Who do people say that Jesus is today? Yeah. Yeah, we're, it has really changed over the last 20 years. It used to be that everyone had a opinion of Jesus. Good, bad, whatever it was, people had an opinion. Now, there are many people who just don't care. Who have like It's weird in American culture in 21st century, but there are people who have ne- truly never heard the name of Jesus. They've never heard the story of Jesus. We assume so much. There are, there are people who don't think a single thing about Jesus, not because they hate him, Because no one has ever even brought it up to them. And so they have no opinion. Of Jesus. Sure. Sure. Right. He's he's just a part of that Christianity thing. He's the namesake. He's the guy who started it. But like that's just another religious guy. You know, he's he's just like Buddha. He's just like Muhammad. He's just like whatever. Some people would think of Jesus as just maybe your preferred way to approach God, but I have my own. You know, kind of thing. What good for you is good for you. What's good for me is good for me. So I'm fine with Jesus. You go follow him, but I don't need to. Okay, it's another very common one. So Jesus was trying to help his his disciples. See that who who do people say that I am? And then he asks them a follow up question. But you, he asks them again, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, I love it, it gets an exclamation point because it's Pete. You're the Messiah. Ding, 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 ding. Way to go, Peter. You finally got one right. Every teacher loves that aha moment when you see the light come on, when a student finally gets it, when you're a parent and you're teaching your kid something and they finally get it, and there's that, oh, I'm so proud. You finally got it. This has to be what Jesus experienced at this point. People say that, uh, that you're John the Baptist, and Jesus is going, no. That you're Elijah, no. That you're John the Baptist, no. I think you're the Messiah. Yes, Peter. Well done. Normally, Jesus follows up a declarative statement that Peter makes with, do you still not understand? Where is your faith, Pete? This is a very common response. We don't have that here. What we have is Jesus going on the nose, Peter. Well done. Now, don't tell anyone else yet. They're not ready for it. But there has to be this pride inside of Jesus of they're finally starting to get it. So let me ask you this question, church, and this is not a trick question. Who do you say that Jesus is? This is not a trick question. If I'm looking for this very specific theological answer, this is a time to praise and lift up His name. Who do you say that Jesus is, Church? Yeah. Yes. Yes. Who do you say that He is? King of Kings. Lord of Lords. Those go beautifully together, don't they? the reason i'm okay at all okay good yeah the healer and the good shepherd praise him who is he church yeah yeah the ultimate example he he's the model for who we should be he he he's the the man made perfect on earth to model our lives after yeah who else yeah, if that doesn't bake your noodle a little bit. He is the almighty God, and yet he is your friend at the same time. The one who dwells in unapproachable light, Peter says later in his life, and the one that I call friend. It, whew, we could spend a minute there. Who do you say he is, church? Who is it? The living God. Yes. Emmanuel, he is God with us. Not God from afar, but God here in our midst with us. Who else? It's okay for kids to shout this one out too. He is the source of all things. Everything, man, Colossians 1, everything that has ever been created was created through him and is held together by him. Incredible. What was it? The Lamb of God. Our only hope. What was it? Our comforter. We have part of the Christian Missionary Alliance we have over here on the wall. We call him our savior, our sanctifier, which means the one who makes us like him. Our healer and our coming king. He's our king today, but one day we will see him in true power and glory as our living, reigning king. Joe. Amen. The way, the truth, and the life. It is important to stop and think, who is Jesus really? If we're not careful, we can hit autopilot and Jesus can just become a part of the Bible. Something that we know some trivia about. Yeah, yeah, we know Jesus died on the cross for my sins and he rose again in three days. Like, We can learn about him, but to stop at times and go, Jesus, this, this is worship. This is who you are. This is what you've said about yourself. This is what I'm saying about you. And we exalt him and we lift up his name. Like Peter said, you are the Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one of God. Peter would have said when he said Messiah, you are the one that we have been waiting for. You are the one that the entire Old Testament history has been building towards. You are the Messiah, the chosen one of God. So there's that aha moment Peter gets it. Yes, boys, you've got it right. This is what they're saying, but you've got it. I am the Messiah. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, be killed, and rise after three days. He was openly talking about this. So Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but man's. Oh, Pete, it was so short-lived. Pete got the multiple choice answer right, but there was an essay on the back. Oh, you're the Messiah, Jesus. Yes, Peter. Now here's what it means to be the Messiah. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected, and be killed. And Peter pulls him aside and begins to rebuke him. And Jesus, he gets pretty upset with Peter. I mean, to the point of saying, get behind me, Satan. Ouch. This one's raised a lot of questions for people. How could Jesus say that to him? This was one of his disciples. Why would he say, get behind me, Satan? The disciples' understanding of who the Messiah was was incredibly different than Jesus' view of the Messiah. Let's begin to break this whole thing down. The disciples would have seen the Messiah, again, the one that they had been waiting for for all of the Old Testament history, as the Messiah was coming to set things right on earth. And what that meant was put Israel back on top, right where it belonged to make Israel a world power again the messiah as as the jews would have recognized it was the conqueror they would have looked at rome and gone wait till the messiah gets here oh you're going to be in trouble cuz he's a conqueror he was coming to lead a rebellion to lead the army of god which was the israelites against its oppressors that's what they would have thought of when when peter said you're the messiah That's what was tied to that name. You are the conqueror, the one who's going to set the nation of Israel free and put us back on top where we belong. That's what they thought the Messiah was here to do, a conqueror. Jesus' view of the Messiah was that the Messiah was here to fight against the root of all that was wrong in this world, the power of sin. One day will Jesus come and reign presently over all of the earth? Yes. But Jesus, when he was here the first time, was here with one enemy in mind, and it wasn't Rome. It was the power of sin, the true enemy of every man's heart, the true oppressor of every created thing. And Jesus was coming to break those chains. But there was this misunderstanding. The disciples and many others who were looking for for the Messiah were looking through this nationalistic lens He's coming to raise up Israel again. Jesus was saying, I'm coming as a personal savior. I'm coming to set each and every person free. And he would go far beyond just the nation of Israel to the ends of the world. They were looking for this earthly king and earthly kingdom. Jesus was coming to set up a spiritual kingdom to set men and women free in the deepest recesses of their hearts, so that they could follow him. Not to set up this earthly kingdom with, here's our boundaries and I've got a throne and the capital is over there, but to come and set up his throne in the hearts of men and women to set us free from, as the writer of Hebrews says, the sin that so easily entangles us. But the disciples missed it. What they thought of Messiah and what he meant by Messiah we're worlds apart. And if you miss that, you miss everything. So then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. He was, he was showing them, here's what it is to be the Messiah. Must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. Be killed and rise after three days. I love that it says he was openly talking about this. There's like a shock statement there. He wasn't even whispering. People could hear him. We just said he's the Messiah, and he started talking about suffering, being rejected, and being killed. And anyone could overhear it, and so Pete decides to step in. Jesus was telling them, now that you guys are hip to who I really am, finally, let's talk about what I'm here to do. Finally, because you understand that I'm the Messiah, let me let you in behind the curtain." Here's what's going on. This is, again, the book of Mark has been driving towards this question. Finally, the disciples seem to get it. And Jesus begins to speak openly. Here's what it means. Let's talk about who the Messiah really is. And they miss it. So Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but man's. Peter calls him the Messiah and then tries to correct him. You are the conquering king, God's anointed one, but you're getting it wrong. Come here. Oh, Jesus, here we go again. You are my king. Nope, 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 nope. Don't say that. You're doing it wrong. It it doesn't fit. Obviously, Peter didn't even understand what he was saying. You are the Messiah, heard some things he didn't like, and began to correct Jesus pulled him aside and you can just see the finger wagging don't say things like that don't you know what people are going to think if they begin to hear you you're saying this openly people are going to lose faith you're going to lose followers you have to stop this you can't call him king and try to direct him at the same time if he is king then he is in charge If he is king, then what he says goes, whether you like it or understand it at all. Because he is king. It goes the same with us, church. If he is king, what he says goes. We do not get to go, but Jesus, maybe you haven't thought this through. If I really do the thing you're calling me to do, you don't understand Jesus. Here's how people are going to respond. Is he king or isn't he? Peter, is he Messiah or isn't he? You can't have it both ways. So, why does Jesus call Peter Satan? Think of the temptations uh, uh, from Satan in the wilderness with Jesus. You can look later when you get home, Matthew 4, Luke 4. Jesus goes out into the wilderness for 40 days and is tempted by Satan. And Satan's temptations, in a snapshot, go something like this Take a shortcut. God wouldn't want you to suffer, would he, Jesus? Jesus, God's plan doesn't make any sense. We can find a different way. Jesus, don't follow God's plan. Follow me instead, Satan would say. Jesus, you look hungry. Certainly God wouldn't want you to suffer. Just turn the rock into bread. Jesus, just tell everyone who you are. Throw yourself off the temple. The angels will come and save you. It'll be a spectacle. Everyone will fall at your feet and start worshiping you. Just do it a different way, an easier way, Jesus. Jesus. This was the temptation of Satan. And I can only imagine this is the same conversations Peter's having with him. Jesus, whoa, 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 suffering, being despised and killed. This cannot be what God has for you. Let's find a different way, Jesus. Certainly, if you're the Messiah, God wouldn't call you to suffer and be rejected, Jesus. You must be getting it wrong. Let's find a shortcut. Let's find an easier way. But again, Jesus tells him, essentially, if I'm the Messiah, then you are to follow. Get behind me. You have the same mind that Satan did when he came and tried to tempt me to find this easier way. And so Jesus looks at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. For you are not concerned about God's concerns, but man's. Jesus says that Peter wasn't thinking about God's concerns, but man's. I, I wonder, what are some of the concerns that were going through Peter's mind? Again, trying to put myself in the story. If I'm Peter, if I've been following this man for three years, and he says, boys, it's time to turn our eyes to Jerusalem, and let me tell you what's going to happen there. Suffering, rejection, and death. But don't worry, I'll raise in three days. And they're like, they, I think their ears, when they got to death, they just are wah, 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 wah. They didn't hear anything else at that point. And so what are some of the concerns that Peter may have had? Again, it doesn't tell us. I'm just putting myself in his shoes. Maybe it was something like this. I don't want my friend to suffer. Certainly God wouldn't do that. If Jesus is the Messiah, God wouldn't call him to suffer, right? God just wants good things. God just wants blessings. He would never call him to that. And maybe it came from this heart of compassion. Jesus is my friend. And I can't stand to see him talk like this. Jesus, no, 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 not for you, not for you. Maybe it was, but if you die in Jerusalem, then what do we follow you for? If we're just going to the place where you're going to be killed, what was the last three years about? I mean, you have to understand, Jesus was not the first person to be known as Messiah. There had been dozens, if not hundreds, of false messiahs before him. People who claimed to be a Messiah, who would raise up a rebellion, they'd gather a small army, and eventually, every single time, they were squashed. Whoever was claiming to be the Messiah was killed, and it all came to nothing. We even see this later in Acts chapter 5, when Peter and John continue to preach the name of Jesus. Uh, The Pharisees and the religious leaders get them together, and they're trying to figure out what to do. And there's this guy named Gamaliel. And Gamaliel says, look, I don't think we should do anything because if this Jesus was a false messiah like all the ones we've seen before when he died everything else should stop that's how it's always worked before let's just wait and see what happens this was a common occurrence for them another one popping up saying he's the messiah so when Jesus says i'm going there and i'm going to die were they going oh no we we backed the wrong horse we picked the wrong one to follow if you die, what was this all for, Jesus? Maybe it was something like, but how will you be the conquering king you're supposed to be if you're going to Jerusalem to suffer and die? This idea that I have of who you're supposed to be doesn't match with what you're saying, so what you're saying must be wrong, Jesus. You have to go and conquer, not be conquered you didn't come to suffer and die because you're this conquering king, Jesus. Stop saying these things. No one can kill you. You're the Messiah. Behind me, Satan. You have man's concerns in mind, not God's. Maybe, I can see myself thinking this one, if you're going to suffer and die, and we're supposed to follow in your footsteps, I don't like what this math adds up to, Jesus. All of a sudden, following you doesn't seem like maybe the greatest thing in the world. When I thought I was following the conquering king, I was going to be a general. But if you're going to suffer and die, and I'm following you, what does that mean for me? Are you telling me that God's going to make me suffer? Are you telling me this may cost me my life? No, 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 Jesus, there's got to be a better way. Let's change it. Let's go with plan B. What is it, Jesus? Behind me, Satan. So let me ask you this question again. Time for us to talk and to share with each other, to learn from one another. The Holy Spirit can speak to and through you just as well as He can through me. It's kind of a twofold question. What is the danger today of misunderstanding who Jesus is? What what is the danger of misunderstanding who Jesus was and who Jesus is today? And in what ways do we misunderstand who Jesus is? What, what ways do we have it twisted in our head? Because it can cost us. So what do you think, church? What? Yeah. Yeah, in what ways do we misunderstand Jesus? Well, he's just like me. He likes what I like. He dislikes what I dislike. He would vote the way that I vote. He would talk to the people that I talk to. Jesus looks just like me. There's a, a very old saying that says, you know, at some point in time we stopped. And instead of man being created in God's image, we created God in man's image. And we we started creating this Jesus who looks just like me, who talks just like me, who acts just like me, and is okay with the things I'm okay with. And that is incredibly dangerous. What else? Either one. tell you what, anyone, sometimes you talk with people and they're going, Jesus is, they they kind of describe Jesus as a hippie. Jesus was about love and peace. I'm like, you've never read the Gospels. When Jesus goes, look, I I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. He says some, some difficult things. Every time he responds to the disciples, part of me goes, I don't like that. You're supposed to be like uber nice all the time, but you're just looking at him and going, where is your faith? Peter? Come on, man. And I'm going, Jesus, that's not, that's not very hippie-like. That's not very, like, nice and peace and love. It's not, that's not super Zen, Jesus. There's a great misunderstanding that way. What else? Yeah. Yeah, if we continue to pursue the wrong idea of who Jesus is, Let's call it what it is idolatry. If we continue to pursue a fake Jesus, we will miss the real one. We will miss the point of it all because we're pursuing someone that makes us comfortable, something that that looks and acts like me. And we will completely miss the real Jesus working and moving in our lives today. What else? He was good for them back then. But yeah, now, I mean, every time you open your Bible, don't you have to blow the dust off? It's 2,000 years old. What? Is it really relevant today? Incredibly. Again, anyone who would ask whether Jesus' life, his teachings, his works, the whole thing is relevant, I would say you've never read the Gospels. You've never truly taken a look at his life because it is incredibly relevant and powerful. What else? Somebody else was going to... Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. When, you know, at the end of... Maybe we'll go all the way to Revelation. That's the end. And now God's going, cool. See you guys in a couple thousand. And he's just waiting for us to figure some things out and to move the ball down the field that's a lie. Again, Jesus says, I only do what I see the Father doing. That was his way of going about life. I have an intimate relationship with the Father. He commands, I obey. He calls, I follow. And now Jesus says, you go and do likewise. Even 2,000 years later, he is working, he is moving in and through us on our behalf and on the behalf of those around us, and we're called to follow his lead. It hasn't changed in 2,000 years. Now we have phones that are more distracting, but outside of that, it hasn't changed. What else? Sure. Right. Yeah, I I think if we're really honest, if we went around this room and were able to be just really transparent, many of us would think Jesus is pretty disappointed in me. because because it's about toe in the line. And he's kind of holding everything against me, and there's this very legalistic view, and I have to kind of earn his favor again. When again, what we find in Scripture is that Jesus is always waiting to dole out grace and forgiveness on those that seek him. And it's not about, did you always do the right thing? Did you never make a mistake? Because if so, get out of my presence. But it's about a God who is waiting for us to bring our mistakes to him and he desires to walk with us through them, to make us more like him, and to show himself off to the world around us. But we, ha- we can have this very judgmental, angry, God's waiting to pour out wrath view of Jesus that is completely inaccurate. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it sounds so okay when somebody says to me, like, oh, that's good for you, but, like, it doesn't work for me or whatever. But, like, right. Man, like, for us to misunderstand the truth that's for them, and like, death, and death forever, like... Right. right. Yeah. And think about this. We asked the question before, who, who do they say that I am? Who does the world say that I am? Most of the opinions the world gets about Jesus, they didn't get from picking up a Bible and reading it themselves. They got from watching us. Most of the opinions that the world gets of who Jesus is and how Jesus views things and what, here's what most of the world thinks, what Jesus hates and is really against, they got from watching us. Us being the the Christian church around the world. And they learned that we're against a whole lot of things. We're not for much, but we're against a whole lot. So Jesus must be. And so he's just angry and legalistic and judgmental. Or we're so like, hey, you believe what you want to believe. I don't want to offend anyone. I don't. So Jesus must be kind of a little pussycat, same idea. They got their ideas from watching us. One of the dangers of misunderstanding Jesus, not just looking at myself in my own life, but all of those around me who will never have the opportunity to see him as he truly is, because either I don't know him that way, or going all the way back to the miracle in the beginning of the message I don't love them enough to get them to the feet of Jesus. To show them who Jesus really is so that they can experience compassion and grace the likes of which they can't even imagine. Understanding who Jesus is and why he came is vital to understanding who we are and why we're here today. When Jesus said, follow me, thousands of years ago, and he still says it today, follow me, He's saying, be about what I'm about and in the way that I go about it. Follow me. Be like me. Be about my business in the way that I'm about it. Live and become like me so that people can see who I really am. And if we have a misunderstanding about Jesus, then we will miscommunicate to people about Jesus. We will miss Jesus in our own lives and those around us who need him so desperately because they are facing both hell today, separation from God in their every day, and they have a hell awaiting them. And it's it's on us, church. I, somebody wrote one time, said, the, the church is plan A, there is no plan B. God has called us to follow him, to be like him, and to make him known. And if we misunderstand it, they miss out because of it. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, first of all, I just want to be real. I miss it, God. I am guilty of everything that we have discussed. There are times when I create an imaginary image of you that looks a whole lot like me. There are times when I overlook your grace and your mercy and I focus on this judgment that has to be waiting for me, even though it's not in your word. Lord, I I become too cautious, too too worried about what people will think of me, and so I don't bring them to the feet of the real Jesus. I offer them a watered-down version, or I just stay quiet and let them think whatever they want. More concerned about my own comfort, than their own eternity. So, Lord, I want to start in a place of repentance. For the times that I have missed you, sometimes through no fault of my own, I'm just, I'm immature and learning, sometimes through very willful sin. I don't like that part of you, that part scares me, and so I choose to look the other way. God, I repent, I lay that down at the foot of the cross. I want to know you as you truly are as you desire to be known, I want to walk with you. And God, I want others to have my relationship with you just just spilling over and splashing on them. To know me is to know you. God, may you give us a love and compassion for those around us that we have to bring them to the feet of Jesus. They have to see Jesus as he truly is. If we miss that, we miss it all. If they miss that, they miss it all. May we see you as you truly are. The uncomfortable, the stuff that we gravitate towards naturally and everything in between. And may we follow you. May we be about what you're about in the way that you're about it. Come, Lord Jesus, I pray. In your name. Amen.